Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you ready to challenge your rhetoric? Today is Wednesday, August 3rd. My name is Jerry Roberts, and I'm your host on Challenging the Rhetoric. Welcome to the show. Last week we talked about some of the reasons why many Americans are pissed off right now. This week we're going to expand on that a little bit with tonight's guest, Todd McFarlane. Todd is LaVoy Finnecombe's and his family's former attorney. He's also a longtime acquaintance of both the Finnecombe and Bundy families. His insight and contribution tonight is going to be a really good thing for all of us. Todd believes the current land management system is broken. That's a quote, broken. Got that from an article. <laughs> uh, it's one of the things that he had said in uh, since the Oregon standoff had, had happened. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that to get a, a better perspective that is going to have some similarities to some of the Bundy's ideas on it. And they, but these are these are Todd's own things. He's not going to be here parroting things from the Bundys or the Finnicums and stuff like that. This is this is Todd McFarlane as himself, who he is as an attorney, as a person, his own beliefs and stances. And maybe some of those are going to be similar to even some of your own. Labels. Labels are a big issue in this country. I've talked about it many times. We use them for all types of groups of people. Whether labels are correct or not, it doesn't seem to matter. Little to men, you know, it doesn't matter little or a lot to any anybody, it seems, because it's just kind of easier to slap that label on someone than it is to actually try to take the time to understand them or where they're coming from. Now, tonight's show isn't about asking you, the listeners, uh, to believe someone else's ideas or beliefs. It's just about hearing them. And you might be surprised. I might be surprised whether it's something that that what somebody in chat says or something that the guest says, and you might be surprised something I say. Understanding is different than believing. Real solutions simply cannot come without first understanding where they come from. Last week I said if we want people to care about our own individual trigger issues, then we each in turn need to care about other people's triggers, trigger issues. I believe this, and I, and I think the regular listeners of the show that, that, that listen all the time, you know, or follow the stuff that I write or follow me on social media, I think they do so in part because they see that I work really hard to walk my talk because I really do care. So remember, when you be little, you be small. And I don't think anybody really wants to be a small person. So we need to take that little statement and really take it inward and, and realize that it matters outwardly. When we're looking at the Bundy issue and the Oregon standoff, the labels that are being used are not wholly accurate. In the Rise of the Cult series, I've broken some of that down a little bit. We'll talk about that a little bit in the latter half of the show uh, tonight. But these labels that we're using, they really do matter. And um, it matters that we get them right if we're going to use them or categorize people, groups of people, because we're lumping them under singular umbrellas that, again, are not accurate. And once we understand what the different breakdown of these sorts of things are, it's going to help understand what really happened. Uh, all these other things, these umbrellas, they cloud us. They cloud how we think. And, and, and if we can understand, you know, what was really happening and why, again, it brings us back to the center to get to some sort of a real dialogue. Equally as bad, you know, of all of that and the labels and the umbrellas is that the Bundy representation of any legitimate land or any other issues uh, that they had or have, um, it, it did little at all to project any kind of real justification for their cause or the means in which they thrust it upon the state of Oregon and the nation for that matter. While they were quick to show us what was in their pocket, you know, that constitution there, they were very slow to reveal what was up their sleeve, especially to the residents of Harney County who did not know what was going to happen and did not know that it was going to impact and affect them so deeply and broadly to this day. There are people uh, in, in, that, in that area that don't want to hear anything more about, 
you know, the situation, and there are others that are very hungry for information new or old, something they missed or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, the, this, the, what happened in Oregon was really a culmination of two years of very ill-perceived and badly projected bravado. Now, I think that had something happened after 2014 Bundy Ranch, we certainly wouldn't have had 2016 Oregon standoff at Malheur. That's my opinion. But I think it's shared by many, and, and including on both sides. I mean, I, I think that had these people gotten in trouble, they would have hesitated. And in the same token, I think if they would have found some kind of, at least a residual kind of um, solution or a path to a solution, we also wouldn't have gotten there. But it is the Bundys and their followers themselves, not the greater public, who has framed this very conversation that we've been having that we've been having for, you know, all year long thus far, okay? We're into month seven of this year. We've been talking about this for a long time. And it's not a conversation that has been in their favor, although they framed it, which is very contrary to what they had hoped and what they still hope. Unfortunately, that conversation has become mostly a game, a finger-pointing and the whole looky-looing thing for entertainment from all of the sides, not a learning experience as it should be. Because we all have something you know, important to learn here, where there's many important things to learn here, and there's many implications that will come out of these cases. And, you know, there is much more to learn than just, you know, don't forget the snacks. Tonight's guest thinks the problem is mostly about the issues. I, I challenge that it is more about the people and the rise of the modern cults that are created by technology and, and how that's taught us to interact and connect if we actually connect at all and how we believe because once you get to that part, then it's about how all of that technology then creates the perfect atmosphere that we start assimilating. And assimilating is the next step before actually um, converting into something. There's a whole lot of assimilation going on, and when we see different unravelings of different groups, not just the, the Bundy Patriots and stuff like that, but different groups, different causes, you, you start seeing infighting infractions and stuff, and that's, that's when they're at the point of assimilation before conversion. Um, and that's very much along the lines of you know, the whole cult aspect of which I speak all the time. But here's the problem. Without people and their beliefs, whatever they may be, there are no causes, because there is no care. If there's no care, there's no causes. Does that make sense? It should make sense because it takes somebody to care about something for it to become a cause. So before I bring on uh, McFarland, uh, let me just give you all the regular old details stuff of the show so you can interact, participate during live show. During each live broadcast, you can interact on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash challengingtherhetoric.news. I'm on Twitter at CTR Newsfeed. Tonight we're using the hashtags CTR, Common Ground, Oregon Standoff. All the stories I cover are available on the CTR website at challengingtherhetoric.news. You can chat with us in the listener chat room during the show at blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. That is spelled C-H-E-R-I. Click on show number 37. The chat room will appear beneath the slider, and if you're already on that page and you don't see the chat room, go ahead and hit your refresh button and scroll right down. It should be there. Remember, this is a dialogue. This is not a debate. There's no personal attacks. There's no overaggression. There's no trolling. None of that's going to be tolerated. I won't hesitate to just shut the chat room down if it becomes a circus. Uh, this is about being civil and actually taking the time to hear one another. And obviously, if you're listening to an archive show, there's no live chat to join. <laughs> so that being said, uh, let's just jump straight in and bring McFarland on the show with us. Uh, I'm looking forward to this, very much so. Todd McFarland, welcome to Challenging the Rhetoric. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been a, a long time coming here. Um, so why don't we start with this? Instead of me telling the audience more about you, I gave you know kind of the more relevant things to, to the initial case, you know, by tying the name to LaVoy Finnecum and stuff. But if you could quickly just tell the listeners who you are, what you do, and what your what your tie is to the Oregon standoff cases. All right, if I have to. I'm not that big on talking about myself. But uh, I am an attorney. I'm a rancher. Uh, I guess the way they talk about ranchers these days, what fifth generation, whatever the case may be. Uh, mostly from Utah, uh, but I have been acquainted with these particular parties for some time based on where I've lived, where I've practiced, the circles that I've turned in, 
in the western ranching industry and I did handle a case or a situation if you want to call it that involving a similar uh, dispute between the BLM and another beleaguered rancher almost 20 years ago in southern Utah and that gave me the opportunity to develop a lot of these connections and relationships it's something I've followed quite closely ever since then uh, my practice has mostly been in in real estate, property rights, natural resource, water law, uh, basically Western ranching law in a nutshell. That's probably enough, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's good. So let's let's kind of jump into this. Um, I, I want to let the listeners know I am aware that there's uh, possibly some audio problems coming from my end, but, uh, you know, I live here on the Oregon coast, and, again, we are having severe winds down here, so... Hopefully, you can still hear and understand. Anyhow, um, I did have to boot somebody out of the chat room already. So if you're in the chat room, you need to behave because I won't hesitate and I won't allow you to disrupt the show further. Okay, so Todd, let's talk about land issues that are specific to ranchers and farmers. Can you point out like two, three of those that are like at the top of the list? Land issues. You know, Ranchers and farmers are completely dependent on land for their operations, uh, unlike a lot of other people. So land is something that's very important. The combination of components that make up a ranching operation, for example, include the land and the forage that it produces, as well as water, the animals, the livestock. They have to have something to eat. They have to have something to drink, uh, that sort of thing, and then there are a lot of other components that go with that. But the land is really important, so disputes over those resources or the way those resources are managed affect ranchers in ways that don't affect everybody else out there. Uh, you know, they may not even have any connection of any kind or be able to relate to the kinds of challenges that ranchers face. And ranchers are up against all kinds of issues. Uh, they're up against Mother Nature. I mean, drought seems to be. Now, I'll have to. I'll have to ask forgiveness. In Southern Utah, we pronounce drought, drought. So if I slip and say it that way, you'll have to forgive me. But that seems to be a okay. perpetual problem, uh, at least in the area I live in. It's a desert, and so that's always a challenge. So you've got Mother Nature. You've got the markets. And you've got all the other things that happen in life, uh, personal tragedies, all the things that have to be dealt with, including, uh, you know, basic financial implications. That includes everything from dealing with creditors to uh, just all the things that a lot of people deal with in life. But as a rancher, you're dealing with Mother Nature. You're dealing with the health of your livestock. You're dealing with predators. You're dealing with labor issues. Uh, and again, you're dealing with the market. So I, I hope that people can understand that it's it's a complicated situation. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of pieces to the puzzle that ranchers have to deal with. Well, Todd, is it, couldn't the same be said for, say, um, you know, the indus, industry in general? Okay, um, builders. Okay, people that the other side of the land issue, or one of the other many sides to it, people that depend on the land also for their livelihood, the construction people, that's dependent on weather, that's dependent on what predators are for, because people, you know, all the time come and squat on builds or come and steal stuff. And, and I know that it's, it's different in certain senses, but there are a lot of similarities in those sorts of things. And that's why I think that when we try to look at land issues for, for farmers and, and, and ranchers that we can't lock it into just that. We need to make any issues that are real and relevant also apply kind of across the board to every American for it to matter to every American. I think that's a good point, Sherry, because like you say, uh, not every American can relate to all of those sorts of things, but there are things about the things that they do or that we do in general that maybe they can relate to. And so one of the points that I want to make along that line, along with all the other challenges, and and I can tell you this, uh, having represented clients, having been there and done it myself, if, if you're trying to do something on the land, whether it's build a house, 
or engage in some land use. One of the things that you deal with is land use regulation, and it can be very frustrating. And it's something that has just morphed, in my opinion, over the course of the last couple of decades. This is even private property. Uh, so now we've gotten to the point in this country that we've got, and, and I don't want to pretend that this is some federal issue. This is an issue that you deal with at every level of government, local government, state government, federal government. You've got the government at some level trying to micromanage everything you do with your property, and that's even private property. If you want to do something in this very large rural agricultural county that I live in, they recently passed a land use ordinance that says you can't engage in any use whatsoever of any nature on your land without first getting a permit. And you can't do anything that this ordinance doesn't specifically say that you can do. And so that's the kind of obstacles that any land user, and, and you're right, there are all kinds of land users out there, and, and I think if you start talking to a bunch of those different land users, they will all share the frustration in being micromanaged in that way. I, my own view is we've just got this increasing disregard for what I'm going to call private property rights. We've got more and more members of the public who feel like they should be able to tell us what we can and can't do, again, even on private property, let alone what we often talk about in this discussion, the term we use is public land. So that would be my response, I suppose. Well, you know, this is a little bit kind of off what, off of our conversation. It's not, but off of, you know, the discussions that we had about our conversation tonight. But you brought up the state, and you made me think of something that I really don't hear a lot about. I hear a, a lot of cries for get the federal land back, right, you know, into the state's hands and stuff. But most of the states are pretty poor, okay? And when you're looking at the numbers that, that BLM is funded with and you're looking at those numbers of how much money, and it's, it's very little is coming from grazing, fee, grazing fees. It's, it's, it's coming from, you know, the federal government. So when we're talking about people wanting the land back in the state's hands, how are the states, what's the proposal for the states to be able to afford that? I mean, quite honestly, um, it, that makes the least sense uh, in, in this equation to me of, of a lot of the different issues because, how, I mean, how do you make that happen without developing the land and turning it into more industry, more development where we're losing that actual quote-unquote public land for multi-use? Sure, I understand. I understand the point you're you're making. So you need to understand. I well, I don't know, from... I, I, Todd. I don't. I don't. I don't know that I'm making a point. I think I'm more asking a question that I don't really okay. hear being answered or even spoken about. All right. Not by you, well, everybody. <laughs> and and one of the things I'm going to say is um, I'm not one of those people who necessarily believe that a land transfer would be some silver bullet solution. Uh, especially to the issues that I was just talking about, the micromanagement of land use. I've been around the block enough to know that land use can get micromanaged by at the local level, at the state level. Um, and so, but to your issue, because it ties to finance, you're saying a lot of states are poor. How could they possibly afford to do this? I don't have it in front of me, but I've seen matrices that show um, basically a comparison between the financial return on lands. And I want to focus on grazing land because that's, you know, we're talking about ranching. We could talk about all kinds of things. We could talk about mining. We could talk about oil and gas development, timber, all of those things. The one that I'm the most comfortable with is grazing and ranching because that's where I come from. Uh, and that's something I care about a lot because from my perspective, it's kind of one of the ultimate green enterprises. It involves renewable resources. It's conversion of, of basically sunlight and biomass into marketable products. So, but anyway, in terms of the financial return, uh, if you look at 
the financial return per acre on land that's managed by the federal government versus state governments versus private property, federal government land, man, federal government managed lands have the lowest return. Private lands have the highest return. And here we're not talking about development. I want to make that clear. We're not talking about building resorts and motels and McDonald's and all the things that you hear people talking about. Those are the buzzwords. We're talking about grazing lands. We're talking about lands that are used for livestock grazing. Just so we know, we're comparing apples to apples, not apples to oranges. Same thing with right. the state lands. However, wait, however, Todd, I do want to put a caveat in there. All lands can be developed, and that's still part of this equation. So right. just because and, we're and calling this kind too. of lands, they can still be developed. And 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 I have to and I have to be clear because the listeners they're they're very savvy, they're very smart, and they're going to ask me whether they do in chat or it's on social media somewhere during the show or after. So I want to make sure that I'm kind of posing different questions from different sides of this coin when you're when you're kind of talking on it. So, anyways, go ahead. I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I understand what you're t- saying, too, that any land can be developed, and that's true. And, and I, I, I know I hear when I see this issue being debate, the, debated, that there's this big concern that if, hypothetically, lands were transferred to the state, that many of those would then be sold and privatized and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and I, I just, I'll be on the record as saying that's not necessarily something that I'm – espousing, I do think that in the western states there's a sufficient amount of land. I mean, you look at the state of Nevada, you look at the state of Utah, comparing to Oregon, for example, uh, I've seen, you know, things that people like you have said, hey, we're really happy about our public lands, how they're managed. Uh, we're, we're, We're pretty excited about all of that, and I have to assume that that also includes the amount of public land you have which in Oregon, I think, federally owned land is something like 53%. Well, in Nevada and Utah, it's a lot higher than that. And so my, my point is this. If in Oregon, people like you, who are savvy, smart, outdoors people who like to recreate and do all the things that we're talking about here, are pretty happy and satisfied with the way those lands are managed, and 53% seems... That you know, you're happy with that. Well, in Utah, Nevada, I think we would be white I mean, I think we would be happier to see those kinds of percentages and ratios too. So my point is this I think there's room for a certain amount of that land potentially to be sold, I mean, and marketed, but I think that the vast majority of it should still continue to be managed as land that's accessible to the general public to do the kinds of things that the general public likes to do, including recreate, hike, camp, hunt, fish, you know, ride ATVs. And I know there's a broad spectrum of people who like to recreate in various ways. I apologize. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, no, I was was just going to say a couple things on what you just said. That way I can kind of address them along the way. So, so one thing is, is when, when you're talking about, you think that there's kind of, in a sense, and I could be wrong, but like there's plenty of land to go around for all these different things. But I think, and for me, my opinion on that, and I think it's also the opinion of many people that are having issues with how this has, had all been presented with the Oregon standoff, is that, first of all, to use the words of Mike Rupert, uh, rest in peace, Mike, is this is a finite planet with infinite growth. So there isn't just all this stuff to go around forever and ever and ever, and we do need to have conservation methods. That being said, when you're listing things for multi-purpose, multi-use stuff, it, what, and I'm not just saying Utah, what I hear, this sound like I said Utah, <laughs> what I hear is that, um, or what I should say, what I'm not hearing is I'm not hearing about people that simply want to go birding or people that want to just sit smack dab in the middle of nature and enjoy it for what it is, not necessarily use it for anything. And and, and in order for those things to take place, we need to care about things like desert tortoises. We need to care about 
different, you know, all, all we're losing things at, at, at a huge rate in, in this world. And, and that simply goes back to the fact that it is a finite planet. We don't get more earth. We don't get more land. We don't get more water mass. That's just the way it is. So how, how does that fit into the equation? Because that's a huge swath of people, and we can't just say you don't matter. And I'm not saying that you say that, but th- this is like really what, what this whole issue is on, on the other side of it. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and, and I, I want you to know that in terms of my own personal philosophies, I, I feel like I'm every bit as much concerned about conservation and stewardship of the land and resources as a lot of other people who consider themselves to be on what we'll maybe call the other side of the fence. The the land that I own and manage and things like that, and not that I'm a perfect steward by any stretch of the imagination, but it's something I care about I don't think anyone the same has. way that you care about and other people care about that. So I want you to know, and I, I agree, uh, we do live on a we're not going to be making a whole bunch more land so uh it's it's something that um it, and the thing about this is there's a whole spectrum of philosophies about this i remember when i went to the the nature conservancy acquired the dugout ranch in san juan county utah it's been oh shoot close to 20 years ago and i went to the dedication ceremony over there i wanted to uh i've got had some family roots that was that came from the Red family. We've talked about Reds. Well, the Reds uh, in San Juan County uh, were a big ranching family, had a lot of holdings there, and uh, and ultimately the Dugout Ranch was acquired by the Nature Conservancy. And I, I remember going uh, and hearing one of the cowboys there who spoke, not just, you know, this wasn't just eavesdropping a conversation, but... But they had him speak, and and he said, you know, from where I come from, plowed ground, in other words, farming, is that's that's the next thing to concrete. That's the next thing to pavement. So it's kind of a progression of philosophies in our minds. So to a rancher like that, uh, farming is development. You know, I mean, he said to me that was almost as bad as pavement. And so I think that it's a useful example to show just how a lot of what we talk about is relative to our own experiences and our own backgrounds and things like that. Back to what I said before, especially when it comes to ranching, I honestly can't think of a more uh, kind of environment-friendly green enterprise than the kind of ranching that typically occurs throughout the West and on the public lands in the West. Uh, That's usually based on rotational grazing. And what happens is you move livestock, and a big part of what happens when you do that is you're managing the forage. And depending on how it's managed, that can be a huge tool in preventing wildfires and removing fuel and, and obviously that's a tool that's being used more and more around the West, not just by the ranchers, but by contract grazers who are being brought in with herds of goats or sheep or whatever the case may be and using them for that specific purpose. But it, in any situation you're going to find involving grazing, ranching in the West, that's how it works. You rotate the livestock. In the area where I live, the ranching operations in this area typically graze on the deserts in the wintertime, move into the higher elevations in the summer, and graze there and then return in the fall to the lower elevations. Um, and again, just so people understand where I'm coming from, I wrote a series of four articles for Stockman Grass Farmer. It's been a few years ago, four or five years ago about Lava Lake Land and Livestock, headquartered in Cary, Idaho, owned by Brian and Kathleen Bean. Kathleen works for the Nature Conservancy. And I explained, you know, how and why they came to acquire their sheep ranching operation and how it works and the rotational grazing system that I've just described. That I mean, 
because they came to realize, despite all the paradigms that they might have acquired through the courses of their experience over the years, they came to realize that, you know what, sheep grazing, sheep ranching in Idaho is actually a very sustainable enterprise that uh, produces income. It, it provides employment for people. It's a great tool for managing these resources, including forage, water, all of those sorts of things. And, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the message that I definitely want to convey. Uh, I don't think it's just the concept of livestock ranching. I, I don't see how that's an unfriendly concept. And so that's some, you know, we're talking ideas, we're talking issues. Uh, I'd be happy to address, you know, what it is about that that people find to be so objectionable. Well, I think that's something that, that should be addressed, and it will take much more than a, than a one-time show, you know, on this show to do it. I mean, that's something for, you know, a long-time forum. And I think that it's, it's a forum that, that there, are, there are many forums that are, that are addressing it, but it's who they're addressing it to. I think a lot of people tend to speak to the choir. Um, one of the things that I'm going to be nailed on if I don't uh, ask you right now is, or, or kind of clarify right now, is now you, you are a rancher, is that correct? I'm a rancher, yes. I own a ranch. Okay, and you also have a farmer's market, right? That's true, I do. And, and you're an active attorney right now? I'm an active attorney. Like I told you, I actually practice law as little as I can get away with. So, in other words, it's not my favorite thing to do. But I don't blame you. I don't blame you. It's when, you know, it's funny. Uh, Mike Arnold, Ammon Bundy's uh, old attorney, I, I get a kick mostly of the the just personal photos that he'll post of, you know, like him in the backyard or something. It seems like he kind of likes to get away from it too. Um, you know, and enjoy that land and enjoy that nature. Um, but so, but with your clients as an attorney, is is there like a ratio of what kind of clients that you deal with that are on these sorts of issues, Todd? You know, at this point in time, and I'm I'm really selective. The reality is, I I uh, I really won't take cases or clients. I mean, my view is that. Most attorneys in the legal profession in general, and forgive me, there are probably attorneys out there listening and all of that business, and I'll catch some flack for this, but I feel like it's a fairly greed-driven profession, and I think money is the biggest thing that drives a lot of things, and it causes attorneys to do a whole lot of things that otherwise they wouldn't necessarily do or want to do. And it's not that I'm particularly well situated. It's just that I made a decision some time ago, some years ago, after having done all of that, that I didn't want to continue to do that. I didn't want to continue to practice that way. So I'm really careful about that. Having said that, it's not the only kind of stuff I do. Most of what I do is, again, ranching law, property rights, real estate, natural resource, water law, that sort of thing. But a few years ago, not that many years ago, I had a friend, an acquaintance here locally, an attorney who was killed in a car accident. And I didn't take over his practice or anything like that. He had a very active criminal defense practice. And I did quite a bit of that way back when. I, I still don't do virtually any criminal defense work at this point. But he did have a handful of federal civil rights cases. That was something I had never dealt with before. I'd never had any experience with that. One was a law enforcement shooting death of uh, a young Native American man. And then there was another uh, law enforcement shooting death of a, a Native American man right here in my community. Uh, it had happened within a month or two of when my friend Jim died and so I got involved in some of those issues, and, and, and I basically took those cases that he had. They all involved, not the federal government, they all involved local government. They involved, uh, again, abuses, civil rights abuses by local government. And, but they involved situations and people that I cared strongly enough about that I was willing to to take those on and, and kind of see them all through to conclusion. 
and it kind of really rounded out my experience and perspective in a lot of ways, but it it helps open your eyes and your mind to a lot of different things. Uh, The reality is those were all issues that have kind of, especially Native Americans, that's that's been a soft spot with me ever since I was a little boy. I I feel like they've been sorely abused in this country, Um, and I feel like they still are. And so, like I said, that's a soft spot with me. Uh, and and part well, of what we're that's talking an about. Excellent, go ahead, Todd. That's an excellent soft spot to have, considering we were talking, you know, we're, we're talking predominantly about what's what has come of the situation in Oregon, and and you know, talking about give back the lands to its rightful owners, and we have a whole tribe that that land actually has originally belonged to. Um, now I, I need to move on to the next segment, and that's Fire of the Week. And it's going to lead us into the second portion of our conversation. So uh, if you can hang tight a minute, I'm going to jump over to Liar of the Week. Sure. Okay, so this this week's Liar of the Week, last week it was kind of everybody for confirmation bias. But this this week, Liar of the Week is also groups of people, and it's groups of people that fall under many different labels that we put on people, and we're going to jump into labels after this little segment here. But we're going to specifically talk right now in this Liar of the Week about Bundy supporters, the, the Bundy issue supporters, Santilli supporters, that sort of thing. Speaking of Santilli, FYI, Spitfire will be the guest on the show tomorrow night, live show, and we're going to be talking a lot about Santilli and Santilli supporters. But tonight, with regards to the supporters of this issue, they come from a whole lot of places, but one of the biggest things that they have been doing from the get-go, in my and many people's opinion, is how their outward behavior has been, from threats to full-on lies and this virility of social media that has been going on with it, and something that they don't seem to understand, and maybe, maybe Todd, when we jump back into the conversation, maybe that was a good place to start, but they do not understand that they're also impacting the cases, not always necessarily in the positive ways in which they, they believe or think that they are. So to anybody that are supporters of the issues of the Bundys and the Santillis and what happened at Malheur, as well as what happened in 2014 Bundy Ranch, you might want to step back and take a breath and really look at yourself in the mirror and the actions and what you are propagating out there and and without the ego being in the way and that, that feel-good feeling you have of being part of a movement, a quote-unquote movement family and realize that you are actually causing some real damage. And when you're perpetuating that sort of stuff for your own things, thinking that you're doing right, when you don't understand all the issues involved or even the people involved, because very few of you actually knew each other prior to this, then that makes you a liar of sorts. So um, really, you need to do some serious thinking on that. All right, Todd, so let's start with that. Let's start. You're an attorney. Okay, now you're not anybody's attorney any longer involved in the case and stuff like that. You're no longer the Finicum attorney for the Finicum family. So not asking you to give away secrets, but I'm, what I'm looking for from a legal perspective is if you were, you know, doing this case, I know that it's very hard for t- attorneys to just go and start speaking and telling, you know, people that are ne- not necessarily really truly related to the case because they're not the defendants, they're not their clients, but telling them what to do. But when you have supporters of these causes that are out there telling blatant lies or making blatant threats and stuff like that, is that hurting the cases? Is it hurting the people in jail? Well, Sherry, you and I had a conversation last week on the phone. It turned into a fairly long mm-hmm. conversation, and we talked about some of that. And, uh, and you know, to be honest, there were some things out there that you, you described to me that I wasn't completely aware of in terms of the kind of uh, chatter, if you will, that's happening out there on social media and things. I'm fairly busy. I don't watch a lot of that. And and to be honest, I just don't have 
much stomach for it, really. And at least the kinds of things that you were describing, I Nor find very disconcerting. Nor do the people that are victims of such. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. people that have become victims of these people, they don't have the stomach for it or the time for it either, but it's a, it's a reality. So, well, um, you know, so there's a to the judges and attorneys even. So. Right. Yeah. And, and so to the extent that what you described to me then and to the extent that you've characterized it tonight is true, I think it's it, it's it's a huge concern, and it 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 hurts everything about uh, the case, if you will, the cause, the movement, whatever that is. And you know, I don't pretend to necessarily. I, again, those are labels that I don't know where anybody fits into those. But yeah, I I, I think that just what you said, people need to give that some serious second thoughts in terms of the kinds of things that they're saying, how they're saying them, especially if it's out there for public consumption on Facebook. And and I have seen some things just recently as I've started following that a little closer, and it was a huge concern to me. Uh, And so I, I don't know exactly what to say to those people to the extent they're listening, but to the extent they are, um, it's not, you know, that sort of thing, those kind of discussions, the exaggerations. <laughs> Say again? I said you'd be surprised the extent they're listening. All right. Well, that's that's good. Because if that's the case, yeah, uh, as an attorney, I want to say this. Uh, yes, I don't represent any of those parties, but I have been closely connected to one of the defendants in the case. And not that I necessarily want to jump up on some big soapbox, but uh, – I met Wes Care. That's K J A R. That only means something to people who grew up in the town that he and I grew up in, because he. I met him when I was there visiting in early January at Malheur, and and he said, "Hey, you know, I want to talk to you. I know who you are. I was quite a bit older than he is, and things like that." And so, um, but anyway, I. Wes has got a story in terms of how he became involved, how he extricated himself from that situation, what he did, all of that. And so that's something that I've followed close and kind of uh, worked with Wes, even though I haven't been his attorney per se. But uh, it gave me an opportunity to see a lot of this up close and personal. And, you know, on his behalf, on anybody's behalf, but one of the things I do want to say is, my view, especially in light of a guy like Wes Kerr, is that he was caught up in what I'm going to call a one-size-fits-all indictment that applied to everybody. He was charged with the same kind of stuff that Ryan and Ammon and others were. And I, from start to finish, did not see the factual basis for him being charged the way he was. Now, it's true. He entered into a plea deal, and some people probably would think, well, it was a really good, lenient deal, or whatever the case may be. From my perspective, he shouldn't even have been charged in the first place. And once they decided to do something different, they should have just dismissed against him outright. He had no opportunity to negotiate anything about that plea deal, including the language. It was basically a take it or leave it. He tried. We tried. Uh, he ended up with a felony. He's going to end up with a felony conviction on his record. And that's something that really troubles me, especially in his case, given the attempts he made to resolve the situation and kind of went way above and beyond what most people would have or did do. And those are some of the things that, like I said, the point I want to make is, We treat a lot of this kind of with a one-size-fits-all approach, and I think that's kind of what the government has been doing. And I never like that approach. I never like a one-size-fits-all approach where we paint everybody with a broad brush. Back to what you said, Sherry, we're talking about issues, but we're talking about people. These are people. They're all individuals. Every single one of them brings something different to the table. And so that's, like I said, that's that's from my perspective. Um, real real quickly, Todd, so that we can move on. Um, as far as, uh, as care goes, and thank you, because I never actually knew how to pronounce the boss name. Uh, I never heard it. Nobody spoken. does. You have to, you have to be from you our hometown to know that. So. 
Right, yeah, so exactly. let me just real briefly, how long has he known anybody in the Bundy family? Okay, so he had never met, never corresponded, never communicated with anybody in the Bundy family until he arrived in Oregon several days after the whole thing started. And the reality is, Wes is the kind of guy, he didn't know what was going on there, but he is one of those people who, when this happened, he was paying attention to what was going on. And there were some things about it that he was intrigued with. He was kind of in between in terms of employment. He knew that his job was going to be ending real soon. And he thought to himself, hey, I want to go check this out. I want to go, instead of just relying on what I'm seeing and hearing in the mainstream media about what's going on, why it's going on, I want to go see for myself. I want to look Ammon Bundy in the eye. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to hear it from his own mouth. I want to know what's going on and why it's going on. And that's what he did. You know, I, I tip my hat to people who are willing to do that sort of thing. When he got up there and had a chance to kind of immerse himself in that, it didn't take him very long to decide that he didn't want to continue to be involved. But he did get himself involved in such a way that he was able to really size things up. And then he decided, he made the choice that he wanted to extricate himself from the situation. He didn't extricate himself on any kind of bad terms or anything like that. Um, he respected Ammon in a way, and, and Ammon, you know, they left on, on mutually, I, they agreed to disagree, which I think people need to be able to do. But for that and for the other efforts that he undertook, which I'm not going to go into detail about, Again, he was caught up in the whole one-size-fits-all indictment, and, and there's serious consequences to him for doing that. There is. There is, certainly. And that, and that brings us to these labels that you and I have spoken about, and we are pretty much in agreement about labels in general, but I think that we look at them a little bit differently. So if, and, and, again, we, need to, we are wrapping up, and we've got about – Maybe ten minutes left um, for, for you know before I start into the close. So, real quickly, can you just kind of give a quick rundown on on the labels and how you perceive it? Because you you perceive me as a Bundy Dasher per se um, for your own reasons. But so labels in general, what do they mean to you? Right, I I really try to avoid labels, and we did have an exchange today where I shared that with you, uh, and I have come to kind of view uh, especially certain journalists who I think do a great job covering a lot of this and talking about it and they know what they're doing, but then they get on Twitter and, and things. And even though an article they might write might be fairly balanced or whatever the case may be, uh, if you follow kind of what they're tweeting and talking about amongst themselves, it's really one-sided. Uh, and, and so that's what I call Bundy bashing. It. I don't take that too seriously, but I, I want to focus on a couple of labels. Uh, and I you wish we remember, had more we time. Wanna, we want to move through because there's still a couple more things that we definitely need to touch on. All right. So what do you want me to talk about the most, Sherry? You you guide it that way. Well, well, with, with regards to the labels and stuff like that, it's to, one thing that people still can't quite get is we call them all patriots, okay? And the fact is is that when I was talking with Spencer Sunshine earlier today on this on this topic and, and it's like when you're when you're looking at the situation, this movement, this quote unquote patriot movement is very, very different than the patriot movement and militia movement of the nineties. And so what we have now is we don't have just a singularity going on between them. Before there were different causes, different things. Abortion was a big thing that they were dealing with at that time. Now that's not even really on a, on a radar issue for the, the current Patriot movement, which is made up predominantly of libertarians and Tea Party members. There's maybe about 20% of liberals in there mixed in, the, in that mix. And, and, what we, and, again, those are all labels, right? But what we're seeing in this particular Patriot movement today is that and I say this all the time, Ammon Bundy, John Ritzheimer, and Pete Santilli, what do those three people have in common? Absolutely nothing except for the fact they're all three men. But on, on topic, the only thing that they have in, com in common is that they all, for their own individual reasons, hate the government or are anti-government okay. or whatever term uh, they want right. to use so, each week. 
So, All right. well, so I want to I want to so talk about me, that. Wait, wait, Todd. Yeah, I, I know. So hold on. Let me let me finish the 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 setting up so you can. The thing is, is that they're very different people, and they're grouped and lumped in under this label of patriots, even self-proclaimed from their own part. But they're actually very different people, very different groups of people, and it's that odd convergence of them that is very confusing to the general public. Go ahead. All right. So I agree with you. The the label patriot, and that's a perfect example of the kind of labels that we're talking about, and it's across the spectrum. I mean, I feel like we've gotten to the point that we just use labels as shortcuts without drilling down and really understanding what's behind it. And I think you've given some perfect examples there. Uh, So for me, the word patriot at this point, you know, I don't assign any particular meaning to it when it comes to any of these people. I mean, I hear it bantied about all the time and it means absolutely nothing to me. But at the same time now... Yeah, exactly. So, but the uh, some of the other uh, labels are extremist. You know, that's one that I see all the time and radical. And the one that you mentioned, and you said this is the common thread, the common denominator be- between them. You said they hate government. Okay, so that is one that I see all the time, anti-government. And you know, I don't buy that. I don't agree with that. I went, I'd known Ammon before, but I went to Oregon. I sat down with him. And again, part of my role there was to try to resolve the situation and see if it couldn't be brought to conclusion and that sort of thing. But I I heard what Ammon had to say, and he said, anarchy is just as bad as tyranny. All these people are continually labeled and characterized as anti-government. I don't think they are anti-government. Even take I Clyden. think that they perpetuated Ryan, that, though. Excuse me? They perpetuated that themselves by their presentation well, and how they did that. And then after the fact, once they were being called on it and in trouble, that's when, oh, I'm not anti-government, I'm just anti-this. But that is, in well, fact, what they perpetuated to the majority of the public's perception, which matters. These, these smaller groups of people, because it's a small group of people. I mean, even I say this every week. Even people in Oregon don't know this ever happened here. I live in Oregon, okay? But these smaller groups of people, these these smaller, they're, they're big issues, but they're smaller fringe groups and whatnot. They somehow it's they're coming across like they're the only one that matter when there's a bigger, greater majority that completely disagrees with with what they presented. So they presented it wrong, and I know that you kind of believe that to a certain extent. So because of that, it's kind of hard to to I understand what you're saying, and I understand that because I've been there, I've been part of these groups and that whole hate the government thing. Okay, but when you're when you're you know have vomit of the mouth like they do when they're in the heat of it, it's hard to take that back in today's technology when it's so well documented. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that makes sure, it hard for them. They did that, not us. Not people right. that, so that I, are I want to make a couple battles. of points. I want to make a couple of points. And I'm, I'm really sensitive to this because I've been characterized as anti-government by people. And, and I think to myself, I mean, if you even ask questions, if you're a journalist, for example, and you start asking questions, say in local government or whatever the case may be, you go in, you believe in government accountability, transparency, that sort of thing, you go in and start asking some questions, then that's the, some of the first words and labels they want to use. Well, you're just anti-government, this, that, and the other. In my own case, I've always worked through the established channels, the branches of government that we have, whether it's litigation. I am a political activist, but I've been actively involved in the election process. I believe in, in change through that process and getting involved. But if you ask questions, if you get involved in those sorts of things, then there are certain people who like to cast you as anti-government. What I think they mean by that is you're anti-status quo. So in other words, I have never heard any of them say, you know, hey, we hate. I think they all believe that the federal government, for example, has a place. And they understand, according to their paradigms, what that place is. They're not happy about the way the federal government is exercising some of its powers at this point in time. Another label that could easily be used is tyranny, tyrannical. And I I do think it's true that the federal government has uh, become 
more tyrannical in a lot of ways. A lot of people I know fear the federal government. Uh, they, they live in fear, including ranchers. They live in fear of the BLM. They feel like they've got to do all of these things. They feel very oppressed. And well, you so, know what, let, let, me, let me help you out here on that, because I think it's very important for my listeners to know that, because I haven't said this yet, and I just realized that. Now, Todd and I, in our previous conversations before the show, there are many things that he and I agree on. We just don't necessarily agree on a lot of these land issues and, and what has transpired with the Bundys. But there are, when he says he's an activist, we've had deep activist conversations and they, there are a lot of things that we agree on. In the chat room right now, people are saying, talking about overreach and infringement and stuff like that. Let me, let me go back on the record because I, I'm well on the record, but in case anybody's listening and does not know that, I do in fact believe that there are government um, infringements on, on American citizens. It's not just about ranchers and stuff like that. It's across the board of many, many, many different issues. I think that the, the worst of it that we're seeing in modern world happened since 9-11. So I don't want to just, like, leave you out there twisting in the wind. I want to be very clear with my listeners that there, there is a problem here with overreach in general across the board on many issues. So we, we have just a couple minutes left, Todd. Um, so when we're talking about this whole people versus the issues, now when you have, and excuse me, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, uh, glib or anything, but when, when you have somebody that's basically the poster child of the movement, a.k.a. Ammon Bundy right now, and what they're presenting out there really does not represent that real issue, where do you go from there? People versus issues. Let me give you an example about that assimilation that I was talking about. And then if you look at anything previous about Santilli and you look in his past, he has assimilated for every cause he's been in. See, Santilli at Bundy Ranch was a bald-headed, clean-shaven man, more kind of like a Joe Rogan sort. But by the time he gets to Oregon standoff, he's got long hair, full beard, and a cowboy hat. All right? That's assimilation. That is a psychological problem that is going on within these movements, and we cannot neglect that. And it's not just the supporters. It's also the quote-unquote leaders of these things. So it's people versus issues. And you want to talk about issues, and you think that that is the most important thing. But I go back to how I started this show, and it's the people that are driving the issues. And so those people and what they're presenting is really the face of everything. And so we have to address that first, in my opinion. Can you talk on that? And you've got, like, two minutes max. So, yeah, what you're saying, it kind of goes back to this old joke about attorneys, that it's only 10% of attorneys that give the rest a bad name. Right, So that's kind of what we're saying here, too, is that based on how Pete Santilli or Ammon Bundy or whomever have chosen to present themselves and everything, then they give a lot of other people a bad name. And I, I, I can't disagree with that. I, I, one of the things that I found really interesting, and I've thought a lot about it since we talked last, is just, and I thought a lot about it before, is just this strange marriage between these ranchers and... Again, Ammon and a few of these are ranchers, but most of the people that came and were responsive and everything were more the well, so-called Well, Ammon's not Patriot technically a rancher. Yeah, I know, Ammon's but he, he comes from that background. I, I right, agree. but he's he not a He comes from that background. <laughs> and so I think that's part of it. But I, as I think about it, you know, ranchers aren't the ones who responded up there. Now, I've talked to a lot of them, but they're, right. they're a real independent sort. They're not the kind of followers that jump on board, and they were not the ones that came route there were a few again in Bunkerville, but it wasn't the ranching community per se. And it's no, not that the ranching it was the militia and the anti government community that came and they wanted yeah. to wave guns and flags and, and attitudes in front of cameras and, and 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 to be able to flip off the government. And that's what I'm talking about, the very, very, very different factions. Todd, I, I, I hope you come on again because I want to continue this conversation. I think this is an excellent start to start really seriously talking about these things, but I do need to wrap up the show. So thank you very, very much for coming on. Very much appreciated. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Our words have power. They have impact on someone. They have impact on more than one person most of the time. If you're seeking to confirm your biases, then you are not seeking truth. You are instead isolating yourself by ideology, just like those that are awaiting their sentencing or trials in the Nevada and Oregon Bundy cases and those that blindly support what they do not understand. Propaganda goes both ways. It goes always. And it's up to each one of you to take responsibility for the propaganda that you participate in, whether you're creating it or curating it. 
caring means a lot of things, including what you put out there for the world and what you subject yourself to and, 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 and the people around you and your real face-to-face life you know, in, from this world. So how much do you really care? That's a question only, that only you can answer. Um, I'll be back live tomorrow night, Thursday, August 4th, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, with special guest Eric Spitfire Wilkinson. We're going to continue the conversation about supporters of these causes, particularly in relation to Internet media host Pete Santilli, a friend of mine. And, uh, and social media has a huge, huge effect and impact. Until then, be kind to one another, whether you like each other or not. Be open to people. Be open to ideas. Ideas that challenge your own rhetoric. That's it for me tonight. Thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.